Throughout history, anguish has befallen those who look upon the Titans. Legends and heroes, gods of the realm, all destined to be forgotten. I only have vague, distant knowledge of them, but the original Titans were twelve children, six male and six female, of the sky and earth, Uranus and Gaia. According to Hesiod's Theogony, when Kronos castrated his father with an adamantine sickle, it allowed the Titans to be born into the cosmos. And there they ruled until a ten-year war with the Olympians saw them defeated and exiled to Tartarus. The Olympian succession assigned them as the new cosmic rulers and left the Titans to fall into obscurity. Although the word Titan is used to describe size, valiance, strength, other characteristics of its namesakes, the Titans themselves have slipped into myth in historical texts. They are referenced in classic art, in modern pop culture, usually incorrectly, and various cultures over the years have assigned different names to them, making it even harder to recognize them. I see products branded with their names all the time, but I doubt half the people who are familiar with the product are even familiar with its namesake. Is this what happens when titans fall? When their name comes and they are replaced by usurpers or new Olympians? Is it fast and wicked or does it last ten years and involve dubious plotting coupled with massive wars? We'll talk about that and more on this week's Creative Writing. Moto One Podcast Network. You're listening to Creative Writing, the motorcycle podcast that's like riding through the rain in wool pants and only wool pants. We're brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. For more information, head over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing. We don't know why they support us, but you should. Now, to your regularly scheduled show, and don't turn it off this time. Don't, just stop. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Yo, yo. Welcome, everybody, to Creative Writing, episode 229, When Titans Fall. Yeah. Okay, listen up, everybody. Uh, we got a quickie for you today. Welcome to our new, uh, this is only our second show on Sundays, so I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it gives you something to, to listen to. We just throw it out to the Moto One execs there at the Moto One Podcast Headquarters in uh, wonderful uh, Cordelia, California. Um, and whatever time they put it out, they put it out. So I hope you're getting this uh, soon enough to crack a beer, maybe if you're getting back from a ride, who knows. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome to this week's show. I want to remind you that the uh, the views and opinions uh, of the participants of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast are those of the participants, and they do not reflect the policy, position, or opinions of Creative Writing, the Moto One Podcast Network, or any of our affiliates, and the opinion is the respective participants and is not intended to malign anyone or anything, even 1983 Nighthawk owners, and that might come in coming in uh, to be an important later. Uh, I hope everybody is uh, is doing really well right now and uh, having a lot of fun. And it's a sweltering heat. I, it, there's a fan in the background. I hope this mic is canceling it out. But there is no way uh, that me and this week's special guest can sit in this studio 
and not swelter. So, uh, yeah, I have to have it on. Um, I hope you like music. I hope you like Titans to begin with. Um, and I hope you like music. And we're going to this, – this week's show hopefully is packed full of uh, fun listening for you, even though it might be more brief than you're used to. Hell, maybe that's better. For Sunday nights, maybe it's a good quick rack up before you have to go back to work. Monday or go sit in line at the unemployment office or whatever the hell you're doing right now. Maybe you have Mondays off and you always have and you always will. Hmm. Um, Hey, in the studio tonight, we have a, I hope you like music. Did I already say that? I hope you like music. I hope you like fun. We've got an amazing, amazing uh, guest in the studio tonight with us. And I'm so pleased. I'm a big fan of music. I love playing music. I got all my guitars here and, um, you know, I always have them with me here in the studio and uh, I just, this is such a cool opportunity. I can't wait to, to introduce tonight's guest. Uh, go ahead. Why don't you introduce yourself and we can get started with this week's show. Hello, I'm Ralph Chambers. I'm the lead singer for Fur Hole. <laughs> we really got in with that one. Yeah, we did. Uh, hey, everybody. Of course, it's uh, me and Tobor. <laughs> Ralph Chambers from Furhole. You know, if you are in a band called Furhole, um, not that we don't want to have you on, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, we got him with that one, Tobor. Um, if there was a band called Furhole, what would you, what do you think about it? I like that music. Yeah. I think I would like any, <laughs> any music by a band called Furhole. All right. So me and Tobor pulled the most epic prank on you just now. It is just us in the studio, uh, today. And like I said, we are going to be brief, but uh, I guess we should get into this week's show, Tobor. We're not going to have a word of the week this week because uh, I'm not going to say it. Part, it's not on our new format listing that they sent us. So are we going to, you know, I don't know if this can be part of the show anymore. They didn't put it on our new format. I want to blast a cat. I know you do. And uh, a lot of people want to hear some traditions. So maybe maybe I'll pencil word of the weekend. If I can remember to write it on these new outlines that they email us every week, I will. Uh, we'll, we'll make it part of a... Um, Sort of an unspoken uh, tr- tradition here. Whoa, did I just I turn myself down? What am I doing? Jeez. Uh, all right. That's what happens when you play with the cord. <laughs> hey, on this week's show, um, I do want to say that uh, there's some current events going on right now. And, and this is the one thing with the Moto 1XX that I was unsure of, about being broadcast on a Sunday. Because we record this earlier in the week and I can tell you all about stuff that's going to happen after it happens. Um, but right now Sturgis is going on. Uh, I'm sure if you're there, you know, you knew, I'm sure if you usually go and you're not there, you also sadly know. So I'm um, sorry to everybody that, uh, would really love to be there right now that can't. And I'm happy for all of you that have made it and are getting all those, um, saggy boobied, uh, tattooed bartenders to <laughs> for the 87 year old bartenders to yourselves right now. And, uh, you know. There's uh, there's always that to look for. So, yeah. Um, so we're wishing a good and safe time to all of our Moto sisters and brothers out there in the South Dakota. And if it wasn't dirty enough, this year there's one more filth at the festival. It used to be gonorrhea that you'd come home with, and now it's gonorona. Oh, yeah. Zing. Oh, Tobor. I thought we agreed. No, oh, the, the joke drum. Tobor, you, you don't have a comedy circuit. I just, yeah, I just thought of that. When somebody makes a joke, I don't know why. I don't know where this started. I'll actually have to look this up. But in um, in human 
tradition, and, and I say tradition loosely, uh, it was always like, uh, they do like a snare hit, what they call a badum tuss. Yeah, there you go. So whenever somebody says something funny, you might, in your, <laughs> I would say heart of hearts, but in your computer processing unit of computer processing units, you may want to hit that little uh, badum tuss joke drum thing, okay? Okay, but it's unlikely that I'll ever hear something funny on this show. Oh. All right. Well, if it's going to be that type of show, let's just get on with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, hey, what's going on uh, with me? If I could learn to talk straight. I've been getting cut down by a robot who doesn't even have a comedy circuit in his uh, programming, but but somehow managed to make a cut down one-liner. Um, so what's been going on with the old Junkmeister? Well, first things first, I have been – I've cleaned up the studio somewhat. It was so nice to come out here and uh, – Basically, be out here with a uh, all the cords wrapped up and everything like all organized, and and it was nice to sit down here and just reach over and plug a couple things in and be good to go. Now, once the show's over, and I'm furiously running outside to get back <laughs> into the uh, into the regular world. Hopefully, I will have the presence of mind to put that all back together. Um, so the next time I come in here, it will be clean. So I've been doing a little bit of this and that. I've been trying to get more things ironed out for the show, including not only um, getting the studio clean, but kind of rearranging in here, maybe getting it socially distanced. I really miss having human interactions. I bet all of us are missing having human interactions. Thus, my comments about Sturgis, where if you're not there this year, I bet you are really missing it and missing your friends. Um, it's part of what's going on right now in uh, the motorcycle world. Um Still, I mean, months now. It seems like this would have been over a while ago. But uh, I've been fixing also a bunch of two-wheeled contraptions around the garage. And if you saw my dank wheelie buster that I put on Instagram the other day, it is sold. I sold it today uh, to somebody who's really going to enjoy it. I put it on Facebook Marketplace to our local uh, local area here. And within like five seconds, I got 40000 Roughly, probably like twenty-seven or thirty uh, hits on it, and that was like within one minute. Um, so yeah, it sold quickly. I price things to sell, baby. I'm not one of the. My wife's like, I would have put it on for a hundred bucks, and I was like, babe, this thing was like a hundred bucks brand new fifteen years ago. Like, come on, you, you got a minus, you know, a few bucks for every year you've had it. Um, that's you know, even five bucks at every. We're lucky to get twenty for this thing. Come on. Um, so anyway, anyways, uh, getting rid of some two wheel stuff. I got a two wheel project that I'm trying to, I shouldn't even say what I'm trying to do. Cause you know how that happens. What, when you're, when you say it, you either use it as motivation to do it or it never happens. So I'm not going to say what I'm doing, but we do have some two wheel projects and contraptions here in the garage. Some of them motorized, some of them not, uh, that we're trying to work on. Maybe, uh, like I mentioned, doing a socially distant makeover to the garage to get some people in here, even even though it was already sort of socially distant, uh, I make it more so so that we are, um, like when Brady came over, we recorded the show in a certain way that we were outside even. We weren't in, even inside a building. So I think I might rearrange the studio to uh, be able to affect an indoor slash outdoor, depending on the guest. Um, I've been trying to catch up on some AMA articles with what spare time I have. And uh, I really am going to go off on this in a minute. I have scripted out this whole week's show, by the way, which has uh, took me a long time to do, so I hope you enjoy it. But speaking of Sturgis and speaking of missing friends and, and the continuing lockdowns, um, I did have an email from one of our listeners that says, I know you guys are still on lockdown in California. Technically, we are on 
a lockdown, but it's not like a shelter-in-place lockdown. It's just like a, uh, you know, businesses aren't allowed to operate with you inside them. If you go to a Starbucks or a Burger King and have... Uh, that's I have a um, gimp here in the studio that I, I have here to slap. You may think I'm slapping the back of my hand. Like, don't, you know, like I see that on reality TV shows all the time. They're like, yeah, you don't you say, get my word, get my name out your mouth. Get my word out your name. Whatever they're, whatever they're saying. They love to slap their hands. I actually have a gimp here because I don't like to slap my own hands together. Especially after the, uh, I could take an Instagram picture of some gross sores that I have in my hand from trying to tear grips off barehanded a uh, couple weeks ago. Thus... Reminding me that I own a grip removal tool and posting it on Instagram as well. But uh, yeah, my hands are tore up right now. I could, uh, you know, so I need a gimp. I, I don't like slapping them together anyway because they're always kind of tore up. So I slap this person. Ready? <laughs> and he can't do anything because, or her, I don't even know what it is. It's just a pile of meat with eyes. Um, but anyway, you keep hearing that noise. That's what me doing. I uh, I wrote this all out and I wanted to try to be concise and because I can ramble like I am right now. So I've written this down and it reminds me of these times that we're in right now. Um, we are, we, like I said, we are in lockdown as far as like certain business practices. Not <clears throat> it's not technically lockdown. Lockdown to me is like where you're you're told to stay put. Here they are still doing like the socially distanced guidelines. Everything's back up and operating. It kind of sucks because. Uh, as I predicted at the beginning of this or like a couple months ago, um, uh, vehicle crashes are up (laughs) or they've returned back to normal levels because, uh, people are out on the road, they're rusty or they're, or we're just getting back from seeing zero traffic and zero incidents to like back up to normal. It seems like such a spike and such an increase, but I can tell you that traffic accidents are up. Traffic is up. Um, foot traffic, not so much, but man, just driving around in LA, uh, I went for a little drive this morning and I know where everyone's driving. They're all driving to the trails and campgrounds right now to go hiking because there's no rangers giving people tickets for parking on, uh, no parking tight, twisty roads. It's only one car wide. Oh, I went for a drive today and my wife almost had a panic attack because there were so many people parked uh, on a road that says do not park. And the reason that you shouldn't park is because the road's only wide enough for <laughs> one car as it is. So now imagine cars poked on, car parked on both sides of the road. It was sketchy. Uh, but I was like, oh, let's go see nature and see some beautiful stuff. And when we got there, it's like all of LA is like, hey, let's go see some nature and beautiful stuff. So everyone was already up there before us. And we went pretty early. So um, yeah. So freedoms, we're going to be getting into that. Actually, God, this, I'm sorry, dude. You look, you're faint. Don't make those eyes at me. Anyway, so we're going to be getting into this, and this is a direct uh, me directly reading this article. I I, I haven't got my um, I'm an AMA member by the way, and I haven't got July or August uh, magazines, and I'm wondering if it's because my membership renews right now, and like every month, every July, they're going to keep asking me like, "Hey, are you still a uh, member?" So we're not going to send you your July magazine ever. But I haven't got the August one either, and so I don't know what's going on. Um, but anyway, uh, so I love the AMA, I love the magazines, and in the June one, um, there was actually a bunch of, and it's like it's afternoon right now. Why am I so tired? Um, in the, uh, what's it called? In the June one, there was a bunch of articles on rides, which I don't usually see. I usually see a bunch of stuff on like first ri- new bikes, my first ride, blah, 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 blah. Well, there's actually some ride routes, ways to take your photo uh, 
from a professional photographer, I thought it was really interesting the sort of stuff they were putting in the June issue. Not all the blah, blah, blah. It was like actual, actual some pra- nice, cool, practical stuff for people that want to get out and like just be better at motorcycling. So um, normally it's, you know, Uncle Jeb's first ride on his, uh, you know, 1956 NSU or something like that. So anyway, one of the articles that I have caught up here in my spare time was uh, Rob Dingman, who is the president and CEO of the AMA, has a staff column in the beginning of every ep- uh, issue of the magazine. And the June issue really got me heated. It was a column titled, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Eroding Freedom. And he starts out with the government taking away our freedoms, and he ends with the CDC or the Center for Disease Control trying to eradicate motorcycling as if it was a disease. And part of this, I'm going to assume, is his frustration with how the AMA is being treated as a business. So the AMA is a nonprofit, and it's not getting the same relief as businesses that rely on profits to keep operations flowing. And I could be totally wrong because in the same paragraph that he states that, he says that as a nonprofit, the AMA has allowed certain political activity and the government is not allowing them to do business because they encourage their members to be politically active and engaged. And now that second statement is one that could get anyone heated and riled up against the man. I mean, because... If you could imagine that every nonprofit that's run for and by certain groups was attacked in that way, for instance, like uh, nonprofits that are working uh, uh, for racial equality, um, LGBTQ nonprofits, prisoners who are wrongfully convicted, there's a bunch of nonprofits for those for them, uh, medical help for like cancer and AIDS and terminally terminally ill people, old people that can't afford stuff, people that are just like you know, there's a bunch of nonprofits that that benefit certain specific groups. And if people were getting targeted for that stuff and the man was coming in the back door, I'm sh- and I'm sure things like that do happen, um, that would be awful. You know, like, especially right now, like black nonprofits getting uh, targeted for, you know, protesting right now and, st- and standing up for their rights that is, you know, things like that. Um, same thing with LGBTQ, like a long time ago, it was like illegal to be gay. It was illegal to be black and married to somebody that was white, like 50 years ago, 60 years ago. So like, you know, there's a bunch of equality issues that nonprofits work for. And if the government decided that it looked bad or like it didn't make sense for, um, for these things to be, uh, uh, I don't know, allowed still because it cost uh, a financial burden on the government or they just didn't like it. There was a lot of presidents and I'm learning more and more and more that, um, you know, as more and more people's histories get dug into to find the CD trash, like there's more and more people like Teddy Roosevelt, who I mentioned was a horrible president a couple weeks weeks ago, maybe even last week's show when I mentioned the canned meat, <laughs> right? He was a white nationalist. He hated slavery and all that stuff. He he was a he was a moral human, believing that all people were equal and shouldn't be slaves. But he was still like a white nationalist. I found out. So I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Um, but anyway, um, so anyways, getting on, moving on. I'm just saying that if they were to target people because of that, like if the government were were to be targeting the AMA because it was a way for them to like uh, disenfranchise them and not allow them to do business. And I'm sure you're going to hear the term disenfranchisement over and over and over, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, in the next year or so, um, especially the, that would be one thing, but I don't think, I think that the AMA is getting targeted because, uh, you know, 
I don't know. It would get my hackles up too. But you had to read the article between his opening statement and then this last paragraph that I'm referencing to see where it got my hackles up. So let's let's rewind a little bit and restart. So first off, he's upset because the government is taking people's rights away. This is his very first opening statement. Uh, the rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution over COVID-19, of all things. So as a somebody who's not a Democrat or a Republican, as far as I'm concerned, you can take the Constitution, wad it up, light it on fire, and throw that hot garbage away, all right? Because it was already written by a bunch of colonials who mostly owned slaves. They were educated, wealthy businessmen and politicians by 1776 when it was written. Um, and of course, they started out as regular people, regular colonists. Maybe, but I guarantee you that no dumb idiot that was just like chopping wood out in the forest one day all of a sudden was like, hey, I'm going to go start a country and like waltzed into the you know, the downtown and had a business interest or something like that. So they were all, by the time that the, uh, the Constitution was written, the, uh, most of these guys were, all of them were educated, I'm pretty much um, sure. Uh, obviously, there was no schools in the U.S. At this time, they were mostly British educated at, at uh, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, higher learning. They were mostly wealthy businessmen and politicians because they were setting up, uh, you know, a new government in the States and they were trying to, trying to do it for their business. They were getting taxed and all this stuff. So basically they were today's Congress, only they didn't want England to get their taxes. They wanted the taxes. Thus the no taxation without representation in the, uh, the old uh, Declaration of Independence and Constitution and all that great jazz. If you read it uh, and p- people are like, ah, man, we, we overthrew them because they wanted our taxes. No, we overthrew them because they were just getting our taxes. Like the Sheriff of Nottingham was coming around taking a little tax from everybody and giving them to the king. We wanted taxes for for representation, right? So there's a big difference there. And they wanted the taxes. They didn't want to send them to England. Guess what? They wanted to keep them. You need taxes. You do need taxes. And even as somebody that is like not a huge tax freak, uh, I do realize that the, the government does need some sort of income in order to uh, even community governments, right? So they wanted the taxes and not necessarily all for good and not necessarily all for bad. I'm just, I'm just telling you. They wrote this thing already with that in mind. So they also begat Manifest Destiny and were kind of ironically imperialist, even though they're trying to get out of the uh, you know, imperialism of England. They just were kind of doing it in the U.S. But eventually, uh, Manifest Destiny was something that became part of their legacy. So I'm sorry if the quote by Ben Franklin that Dingman most likely got off of Instagram because I've seen everybody throwing it around. It doesn't raise me to go banging on my local representative's door just because I can't go to the gym or the barber, right? And by now, this is all cleared up. <laughs> you can go to the barbers are cutting hair outside. Guess what? Hey, when something, uh, uh, when a challenge arises, we overcome it. So real freedom is actually what happened before the Constitution was written. And if it was so perfect, we wouldn't have had to amend it 4,000 times. And just it being written was the first step in taking away freedom, if you think about it, because one, it started setting ground rules. And rules isn't liberty or freedom. That's just making a new set of rules for these new people to follow. And two, it specifically omitted women and all non-white males from its protections. You know, uh, they were given. They will give you protections uh, due to the authority that it grants them. But already, this thing was taking away freedoms just by being written. Um, and it wasn't a democratic decision. It was the founding fathers who wrote it. Right. So. Throw your constitution argument out the window, Rob Dingman. I don't give a shit about the constitution, to be honest. Um, That sounds very un-American, but I think 
if you could say like we should update it, sure. Like it was written 200 years ago, and none of that shit that they were facing uh, affects us today, right? We are not fighting for freedom from another. uh, We're fighting for freedom from our own goddamn government at this point, in a way. So he brings up that trash that like Ben Franklin's little uh, thing. You know, you might as well bring up something that the friggin' Romans were saying when that when this. Samnites were beating the hell out of them or whatever. So uh, it's it's ancient history, bro, and it doesn't affect your little motorcycling you know, business that you're trying to run. So he also brings up businesses and places of worship being closed, forced closed, and not being allowed to protest publicly and how it's gradual erosion of liberties, like a frog being boiled. So he does... Mentioned that the government could be tracking us by phone too and which way they are. I think there's a COVID tracker on your phone that you didn't ask to be put there. But it says nothing about the data mining that I can guarantee you occurs with your AMA information being entered into their system. Everybody data mines. Google tracks every single thing you do, actually. I listened to a lot of, uh, I listened to some detective podcasts before and guess how they found the guy that they were looking for and tracked his. alibi versus what he was saying or his, his alibi versus the truth is that Google tracks every god dang thing you do your location your uh, every single cell tower it pings off of what you look up your search history your purchase history every single thing you do uh, Google tracks it but are we worried about that no we're worried about the big brother coming in and taking away our right to go to the gym and, and ride our motorcycle and go to the AMA vintage day so this you'll see where I'm going with this right and and uh, and the AMA mining my information, right? So Google and Facebook and Instagram too. Facebook owns Instagram. Facebook got in trouble for all that data mining. We don't care about that, but man, the government denies our right to go to the gym. Oh man, let's throw let's go publicly protest without masks on since this is a pandemic that's uh, causing us to be locked out of this whole thing. It's just like a continuing circle of idiocy, right? And did you know that actually visiting a website nowadays requires the site owner to ask you if you would like to be tracked by cookies and how and all that good stuff? And do you know who made them do that? A government did. So although you choose to give up your information freely, the government's there to make sure that you are protected and really want to give up your information. And sometimes the function of the government does what it's supposed to, which is serve the good of the citizens, right? So I don't, I'm not all pro Big Brother either, but I'm just saying that I think this is where Bingman's Dingman's, uh, Dingman's beef comes in because I think this is why he starts bringing all this stuff up and he starts relating to all this stuff because if you know anyway I think he he uh, he states that we were told by the government that this is all temporary this shutdowns all this great stuff and it's and, and the lockdowns and the mandatory masking and all this stuff and it's for our own good but it's only a matter of time before motorcycling is banned to save human lives and the rant continues into the realm of autonomous vehicle public testing, a CDC task force to mandate a helmet, uh, like a helmet law, and all of that being a way to end motorcycle. Every single thing the government's doing is a way to end motorcyclists' way of life and liberty. So listen, I know the AMA is probably pretty upset because Vintage Days was canceled along with other AMA race, race events, but that's because of large crowds, right? But understand that this... The situation is temporary, assuming that people do the right thing (laughs) and stating that people aren't being allowed to protest uh, gym and barber closures is kind of misunderstanding freedom. And this is all my opinion again. 
because that's also a very petty problem when you consider that real po- protests for injustice are happening and those protesters are having real freedoms taken away. They're being locked in jail. They're being beaten. They're still being shot. So not, not, and I'm not talking rioters or circumstantial looters. I'm talking like the mayors, politicians, media, activists, and even veterans getting beaten by police for specifically protesting police violence, right? And when there's a real cause, there should be civil disobedience and protesting, but not because you can't get your hair cut, not because you can't have a little motorcycle event, right? So I understand that he's probably upset over that. And um, it maybe relates back to the way he feels, like the, the dots that he connected to, the, to them punishing the AMA because they are politically active. They're politically active for helmet laws, dude, not for like... I mean, you know, so we'll get there in a second because we're still not there yet. So people protesting in other com- and or not people protesting, just people being outside in other countries, they're being whipped with sticks and poles just for being outside during a pandemic. So I think not gathering to protest your gym being closed until we can find a safer way to be, about, be around super spreaders seems to me a little bit more freedom than others be, are being granted in other countries, to say the least. And I'm not trying to compare the U.S. to other countries because, granted, we are one of the best, one of the most free countries. Um, but when we start complaining about stuff like not being able to go to little events because there might be too many, many people there because the whole reason of not wanting to be around people is so we can get back to normalcy, I just don't understand the... Uh, the way of thinking here. So no one brings up that the freedoms that everyone gives up during any world war or any economic crisis, or even like the oil crisis in the seventies, or even any time that you have to sign a new cell phone contract, you're giving up more of your, uh, freedoms and, and, uh, civil liberties to, you know, have a tort or have some sort of dispute with another, with a company that's a, that's going to hose you than you are by staying home and not going to the gym. So think about that next time you're protesting something, all the stuff you, you freely sign away, uh, and take your Ben Franklin quote that everyone's throwing around and smoke that while you're, while you're doing it. You might as well just sign a pen, sign it with a pen that has that on it. And then the, the irony, shove it up your nose or whatever. So as far as lawmakers letting autonomous vehicles on the road, let's get back to his points here, trying to ruin motorcycling. I think that's a way to make them safer around all traffic, whether it be pedestrian, two, three, four plus wheels, you know, uh, uh, any of that stuff. I don't think it's a way to stop motorcycles. The way to make motorcycles more engaged is to do what the CMC is doing and bring motorcycles into the conversation about it. The AMA is doing it too, and I do like a lot of the causes that the AMA follows on their political side, uh, and I do think that the causes that they have are pretty good. But bringing that into this conversation of what's happening right now is silly, right? So, like, the things that you should be fighting for have nothing to do with this pandemic, right? And and your feelings toward your event being canceled because of the pandemic. Finally, the issue of the CDC task force to push a federal helmet law mandate, I don't doubt that that happened. And I think there was actually, uh, he had somebody that brought it up and had, like, them and the, the National Highway traffic safety committee honestly i don't care if people wear a helmet or not and i don't think that the cdc they probably did have a task force put out there to see what the cost of a helmet law would cost right but i can't think of how many people quit driving because seat belts and airbags became mandatory and it's because the number is zero 
the number of cars and drivers skyrocketed since seatbelt laws became mandatory like in the eight, uh, I think it was like the 80s or 90s. I know it was, I think it was the 80s. And I remember Ralph Nader having something to do with it. Um, and, you know, nowadays you think people want to drive less knowing that they're, they aren't going to fly through the windshield in an impact or get thrown around in the cabin in a rollover? Hell no. People look for cars. They actually are looking for cars with more airbags nowadays and, and all these side curtain airbags. And, uh, I, you know, there's like 80, 80 of them. Seabelts even have airbags in them now. And it's like the more the merrier and the more we always talk about people riding in this safe cage. Well, guess what? If we if we never if never uh, progressed and and try to get safety pass, they would still be riding in these things like they were in the fifties without collapsible steering columns. Like nowadays, steering is done all electronically. Sometimes there's like a servo motor on your steering wheel and one down on the wheels, and they have they have zero physical connection to each other. Because in the old days, there was a straight rod coming up, and if you got if you got in a front end collision. And your axle got pushed back, your front, your front, you know, steering mechanism. Guess what? That long straight shaft would come straight back and chop your head off and smash it into the roof because that's where your uh, steering wheel was headed to. So yeah, I I like the fact that safety things have been made and people are safer driving. And the reason we call it a cage is because uh, it is safer. You think that like a motorcyclist would maybe like to put at least two inches of protection between their head and 65 miles an hour of concrete. But I don't know what other bikers think. I don't know what other bikers like. Maybe people do like the freedom of the, uh, the wind in their hair. So I don't give a crap about, you know, your efforts to stave off this mandatory helmet law, you know, like I'd, I'd rather have you fight for national lane splitting or at least filtering so that, so that I, if I don't have a helmet on, at least I can keep moving when cars are stacking up on the freeway and they're likely to rear end me, right? I can get in between them. There have actually been studies, two studies, the Hurt Report and the Davis Report, uh, showing how crashes happen. And yeah, when you're between two cars, uh, in between the bumper front and rear bumpers of cars, it's usually fatal for the motorcyclist. If you're in between them, like filtering or splitting lanes, guess what? They smash into each other, and you've got this little corridor of safety. So if you, if you're not gonna if you're gonna try and stave off this helmet law, please allow uh, fight for lane filtering and splitting in all the states, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, 85 miles an hour on one wheel between stopped cars because that's not legal in any state, even California's reputation. But come on, like I'm more, um, if you're not going to push for helmet laws, then why don't you push for lane splitting? And next time I'm riding through Nevada in the 120 degree heat, I I won't have to worry about melting on my friggin' air cooled bike and sitting in uh, behind uh, hot car exhaust. So that would be bitchin'. And the helmet thing wouldn't bother me either. I don't care if the CDC makes them mandatory or, you know, it might be encringing on your freedoms and impinging on your cringes. <laughs> I like encringing. That's good. I just made that up. It's a good word. Um, but anyways, so no one seems to like even make a peep when you go to a construction site and it says hard hatch required. Still toes have to be worn. But I'll be damned when the five o'clock whistle blows if I can't throw my hard hat in my bag, walk off the site, jump on my hog and ride b- you know, just me and my sunglasses with my stupid head getting sunburnt, bug struck, and possibly ground to a pulp if my tire blows out because I picked up the nail driving off the construction site. So all this because of COVID-19 and my freedoms, right? So that's part of it that really struck me and got my hackles up. To close, 
I don't think we're losing freedoms left and right. I think most people are selfish and can't be expected to look out for their fellow man, which is exactly why we vote for representatives to look out for us as a group, which is exactly why governments were formed. Um, there's just too many, you know, if, if, if a, every Senate meeting included the 1.3 billion people that are, that are in the United States, I feel like there's that many people in LA and San Francisco alone. I don't really know the, the exact population of the United States, but if we had to count on everybody, and everyone's looking out for themselves. That's why we even have representatives. That's why we have small communities broken out and people representing them, right? So, uh, and we're we don't we need the good of the whole. So we all we all as a group collectively tell them, and then they take the majority they're supposed to, right? And so these representatives turn around and tell us that we are part of the problem. That's when we hit our flashpoint. Because, hey, we elect you. So especially as we become to interpret privilege as right. Like we interpret a lot of things as our rights in the United States. And I'm guessing other countries, if you're listening to me from maybe, you know, even Australia or England, I don't even know. But when is your right not a, you know, your privilege a right? And so just the right to drive a motorcycle or a car, ride a motorcycle or drive a car is a friggin' privilege in most states. You get issued that by your local and state government, uh, the license to do so. You have to take tests to do so. The same with owning anything, you know, like, I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of things, people are freaking out about our rights right now when you're, it's kind of a privilege to be able to go to a race and to be able to go do things. So I really do like the AMA most of the time and I love what it does for motorcyclists' rights but those rights aren't the rights to potentially spread a new disease to others so that we can see an old motorcycle or go to an event and buy one for like $200. Like I'm, I'm fine with AMA vintage days being canceled for one year. If it means that like we don't have to go through all this crap again, uh, in another two months, because there's like a resurgence, which is happening right now. And I ha I'm not like up on all the COVID numbers and all this and that, so I don't really care. Uh, I don't really track it. But I just wanted to say, before you get all up in arms and write a column about the rights, and I haven't seen the July or August issue, like I said, they haven't come yet, and maybe the AMA is being stifled right now, and they are unable to publish the magazine because they are being held down by the man, well, I'm sure I, I will volunteer my time, because that's another thing we can do as, as human beings and uh, like nonprofits is we can volunteer our time, right? So I will come down and help you fucking turn the crank, whoops, said a cuss word there, I will help you turn the crank on the old printing press, and we'll get this thing out, if it means means I can read it and see if there's any follow-ups to your, uh, you know, your, your arguments. I would like to also say that there is a, uh, Glen Helen Raceway. I was reading their site and the guy on there or the woman, I don't know who was, uh, putting their post up, but they agreed that, Hey, idiots, like you can't be trusted. The whole reason that there has to be regulations put in place is obviously because we can't trust you to do the right thing. Like I could tell you when I was in Arkansas, nobody's wearing masks. Well, hopefully one person doesn't have this stupid disease because uh, they're going to spread it all around. And if you pay attention to motorcycle racing, MotoGP had its first case in the paddocks from a cameraman who brought it in. So the whole uh, camera crew had to be sequestered now and it potentially could have spread it to all the racers. So even where they're trying to make it really safe, doesn't mean it is so. And the guy was non-symptomatic, so hopefully none of the older guys there catch it and yada, yada, so on and so on. I'm just saying, you just if you know you've got something or, if, or even just take a friggin' precaution, 
it won't be an issue for anybody and we can get all this behind us and it'll be great. And we won't hopefully have lost any freedoms. Hopefully it'll make you open your eyes. And even if this perceived freedom is really just a privilege and not a right, hopefully it will open your eyes and you'll be more, uh, adept and and apt to take action the next time you feel like your real freedoms are being infringed upon and encringed upon. And so, yeah, Rob Dingman, disappointed with June's letter. And uh, I don't feel like trying to take control of a situation as humans, as collective uh, society is uh, corrosion of our freedoms. Uh, by any means. I think some of the other social issues that are happening around here are, and you should really open your eyes and see what's a freedom and uh, what we take for granted as a right. So, all right, let's uh, take a quick break and move on to the next segment. Hey, everybody, this is Russ T. Boners calling in to tell you that for almost 128 years, Clubman Pickles has been the number one pickle trusted by motorcyclists all around the world. Did you know that it was Evil Knievel's favorite pickle? That's right. Ask him yourself. Clobman's Pickles. Quality guaranteed. We'll put a trophy on your shelf or we'll eat a jar of Clobman Pickles ourselves. Clobman's. Guaranteed. Clobman Pickles does not endorse Rusty Boners in any way or the representatives from Shanahan McManabone. His managing agency, Rusty Boners, is a celebrity who is down on his luck and was paid a minimal amount of money to appear in his Clobman's Pickle. Clobman's, available everywhere but Alaska, Hawaii, and the Dominican Republic. Clobman's, guaranteed. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Creative Writing. Rant over, rant over. Um, so, hey, guess what? This is our news segment, and we've got some big news for you. Tobor, hit me up on the soundboard. Tobor! Oh, my God, Tobor's dead. Um, hey, listen, and he's got the soundboard turned off. He died with the launch code in his hand, and the uh, thing turned off. Yes, I know. All right, everybody, this is our news segment. Tobor, I wish he was alive so he could give us some... Um, News. Yes. So, hey, big news this week. Honda CBR600RR gets a redesign. It's back, baby. That's some of the headlines I've read. But if you're in the United States, it never left. We don't know what you're talking about. So, there is a new CBR600RR that has been shown in the press and in the media. And this new model was restyled, has restyled aero with a, I want to call it a condensed front end from the, from the profile. It's a little bit more rounded obviously new aerodynamics new lighting all that great stuff the rear end i can't remember it looks a little bit uh more pointy the front end from a straight on pick is considerably r1 looking huh and it's due a year from now so i guess in a year we'll be able to see but uh yeah i didn't want to you know go you go back to the year before the uh, the last gen R1, and I think this Honda looks a lot like it. I mean, that was a pretty good R1 too. Uh, not you know, not to put down the R1, but um, I'm, I'm not putting down the R1. I guess I'm saying that uh, the best form of, of, of 
flattery is imitation. So anyway, there's a video out that's been released by Honda showing the new power plant on a track. So you can get, you can get to hear it. You can get to see it in action. You can get to see what you think about it yourself. Um, the CBR600RR has remained largely unchanged visually since its last makeover in 2013. So it's been a little bit. I read somewhere that a decade ago, blah, blah, blah. Well, seven years is almost a decade. And by the time this thing comes out, eight years, yeah, we'll give you the better part of a decade. But it said over a decade. And that's not true. Uh, 2013, I believe, was the last uh, iteration. Since then, it has got a few tweaks and, uh, you know, upgrades. Uh, very, very minor, as all motorcycles have, um, regarding the uh, the sort of ABS and stuff that's available on race bikes now. But, yeah, so the motorcycle industry uh, in general is, uh, you know, putting some money into these redesigns. And like I said, Kawasaki did a big one for 2020 on a lot of their stuff. Uh, and the Ninja, I believe, received it on their end too. So yeah, interesting to see that Honda is finally jumping on the CBR, giving it its first makeover since it got uh, redesigned in 2013. And it looks pretty cray. So we'll see what happens there. And I, I and the reason that it's saying, hey, we're back, is because it didn't comply with... Uh, Euro 4, I don't know how they were making these like uh, CBR 300s and 500s and all this stuff that were complying, but they couldn't make a 600 that complied. I have no idea. Maybe it's because they couldn't make it race ready, right? Because the CBR 600 RR and the 1000 RR, RR kind of sounds, sounds for race ready or race replica, if you ask some people. So I am not 100% sure. Maybe they couldn't make a really good bike to homologate, and that's what it was. So anyway, they have now, and we'll be seeing it. Uh, <clears throat> second news. Tobor, hit me up with some of that sweet news jingle again. I really like that. Yeah. Oh, God. Sorry. Hey, the motorcycle industry, well, that's very appropriate, actually. Give me the... Uh, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Motorcycle industry has seen a sharp decline in performance. I'm going to make a caveat here. I'm going to make a little asterisk on these notes that they, they gave me. Uh, during the first two quarters of 2020 compared to last year, and rightly so, obviously COVID, we just had a big rant about that, most developed countries were on some sort of lockdown, uh, especially where motorcycles are made, affecting jobs, spending, and access to luxury items. So whether it was uh, whether you're working in a place like Japan or uh, Italy or Germany, where a lot of the motorcycles are made, or even Thailand, I'm assuming lots of Asia, I'm predicting and assuming we're on massive amounts of lockdown. Uh, so the factories, um, the dealerships, uh, people's jobs uh, in the uh, resulting and surrounding industries and all that, everything trickled down. And if you lost your job, all of a sudden you have less spending cash. Um, and so you're not going to be buying a new motorcycle unless you depend on it for transportation, which is why I said most developing countries uh, saw this trend happening. Uh, this is where the expensive motorcycles reside after all. And uh, so, yeah. They reported uh, power sports dealers now have been reporting continued sales quarter after quarter. And that's thanks to the growing side-by-side -side segment and the off-road segment, which was largely untouched by COVID-19. The best way to get out is to buy a cheaper bike uh, and go get into the wilderness. So a lot of the, at least here in the States, a lot of the uh, off-road market was untouched side by side segment has only been growing um and they even if they were hit a little bit by the initial COVID-19 wave that went through the the uh, world economy 
they have showed no signs of slowing down. So brands like Harley-Davidson and Ducati are the ones that are diving steeply as a result to a very, I would consider, high-end um, like niche brands. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. The Long Way Up series featuring Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor. This is going to be a applause, Tobor. You know what applause is? Oh, you do? Good. Yeah, thank you. So the Long Way Up series featuring Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor will begin airing globally on Apple Plus TV in September. The duo famous for their Long Way series has chose to start in Argentina. I'm hitting my gimp again, sorry. And the ride HD Livewires up north to Los Angeles. You may have meant, remembered us talking about this, I think it was last year. Um, and September 18th is the release date for The Long Way Up to premiere. So keep your eyes peeled for Apple TV Plus, September 18th. That's not too far. What's today? Today is August. Uh, well, when this show comes out, it'll be August 9th. So, yeah, we're, we are uh, 142 days away. So pretty coming up pretty close. So, well, what was the other news? So that was it. That's it for the news. All right. Yay. Tobor. Get us out of here. Tobor. Tobor. <laughs> mm, what's that smell? They're at it again. The folks at RP Enterprises solving two world problems with one great solution. You got a hankering for some of grandma's hush puppies? Sure you do. They're delicious. You love them. Well, how about solving world hunger and the pet overpopulation problem with one easy, simple, tasty solution. Fist Puppies from RP Enterprises. Never have to listen to a Sarah McLaughlin song again about it. Fist Puppies available only at Hetty's on Fourth Street. Looking for a high quality leather that doesn't cost an arm and a leg? Well, not yours anyway. Try Criders, made in the USA from 100% renewable resources. We don't use fancy hide like kangaroo or elk, nor do we use other imported hides like jaguar or okapi. Those animals are scarce and protected. We extrapolate our hides from a unique source of marsupial. Not a wallaby though, if that's what you were thinking. Criders leathers are made from the United States' most renewable resource, the common opossum. The common opossum is so common, in fact, that thousands of hides go to waste each year on American roadways. We don't believe in letting these valuable garment farms end up in the city dump, especially with a looming leather shortage on the horizon. Criders is dedicated to rider safety, and a low overhead is our number one priority. Visit Criders today and we'll fit you up in new skin. Possum skin! Criders, the cheapest leather you'll wear. Visit Criders now. We're located down by the stream behind the old recycling factory, Criders Leathers. All right, everybody, welcome back to Creative Writing. Sears and Roebuck, 1893 to 2018, and still falling. They're responsible for the Sears Tower, once the Amazon of its time, with mail order catalogs and special items being branded exclusively for its stores. At one time, you could actually buy special guitars, guns, and motorcycles exclusively through the catalog, and they were only available through the Sears catalog. I actually have a Sears catalog special silver tone uh, that uh, I still play, and you could only get that color and that uh, guitar amp combo in 1963 from 
the uh, the Sears catalog. They were the largest retailer in the United States through the 1980s, surpassed by Walmart and Kmart in the 90s, and then being nearly eradicated completely by Amazon and other department stores like Target, again, Walmart. Um, they've been cutting, 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 and they announced that they were going to cut down to 225 stores, but now they are down to 61 stores after a wave of closures just in uh, July of 2020. Sears and Roebuck, a titan. This is going to be our main segment that we talk about the fall of the Titans. That's the the uh, the uh, title track, if you will, to this episode. And what do all these Titans I'm about to uh, talk about have in common? Well, we will hear about it. And the people that, if I reference back to the uh, the beginning of the show, the people that look up to the Titans and that idolize the Titans, you got to realize there's a little bit of tragedy in all this, and we'll get to that at the end. So I, I want to walk through walk us through some history of when Titans fall, and they are still falling. Sears and Roebuck, I don't know when the last time you saw a Sears store was, but going from the number one, my family still has some old um, Sears catalogs from the uh, turn of the century and from the 20s, uh, the 40s. They just they kept them. They piled them up, and they used, the, used them in the outhouse because that catalog was so thick. It was literally like uh, an Amazon catalog printed out, you know? So imagine that, and imagine every couple, like the fall catalog, the spring catalog, the Christmas catalog, getting all that stuff and being able to save it because toilet paper wasn't invented yet. Or if it was, I I have no idea when it was invented. But I'm going to assume that people just made do with what they had. Made do. <laughs> Anyways, so you go from that, being on top of the world, um, being responsible for the Sears Tower, which is like an amazing building that's still around and... and uh, you know, Sears was probably on the name of some stadiums back back in the day, even though they didn't really usually have corporate branding on stadiums back in the day. Uh, it would have been, you know. So going from that down to a pitiful 61 stores, at, you know, worldwide, I think that is. So, yeah, Woolworth Company, F.W. Woolworth, 1879 to 1997. So about 20, 20 years younger than, uh, or older than Sears and Robot Company, around 20 years longer. Woolworth Building was the tallest building in the world from 1913 to 1930 down there in New York City somewhere. And Woolworth was the first store with set fixed prices at 5 or $0.10, cents depending, on the, uh, depending on the item. And that lent the uh, na- the pop culture name of Five and Dime for department stores. If you're headed down to the Five and Dime, uh, that means, you know, Woolworth started that. They they set their prices. And b- before this, uh, it was one of the first stores to have uh, departments, I guess, with, you know, out of actual sales clerk having to be there to show you the items. You could actually pick it up and look at it and inspect it for yourself. It was one of the first ones where negotiating was not a thing anymore. Uh, it was a set price. And they often undercut the competition with these set prices. So before, the the competition would have their prices really high. You could negotiate down uh, more of like a negotiation system like exists in most other countries and Sears and Robux was one of the ones where they set it you walk into a store and you pay that and now we're kind of getting back into the people realize you can still negotiate with stores and they're kind of doing it more and more but I'm sorry not Woolworth uh, uh, not Sears Woolworth so Woolworth Woolworth did all this uh, responsible for the term five and dime 
And from 1960 to 64, Woolworth's whites-only lunch counters became part of the American Civil Rights Movement as sit-ins by activists were staged at the whites-only lunch counters across the South. Uh, This happened in 1960. I know it happened in 1963 uh, and 64. I think there was a bunch that happened. And... Woolworths, um, that's what ironically made them sort of uh, famous in the 60s. And I, and I think that the Woolworths, even though Woolworths are all gone now, and they got re, I think they became rebranded. Um, uh, it was kind of like Polaris buying Indian. People bought it for the name Woolworth. So it may appear that Woolworth is still operating in some countries. You may see Woolworths, and they really split up and spread out. Uh, and basically ended up, I think it was they're trying to diversify that actually in the 70s, I believe it was, that really, really set them on the path to self-destruction uh, only 20 or 30 years later. Not a very long legacy when you think about it. Uh, less than, uh, just just over, let me see, like 120 years, right? So some companies and some, if you think of breweries and stuff that are around for hundreds and hundreds of years, this is really uh, just a blink of an eye. So they um, try to diversify. I know they spun off into Foot Locker. They tried to make, instead of department stores, they tried to make specialty stores. And there were already specialty stores. So they spread their money thin, realized that market was already saturated and didn't have enough money to rise back up like a tsunami. Instead, they crashed like a gentle wave on the beach and uh, just sudsed out, fuzzed out, faded away like like a wave does. And so, like I'm saying, the Woolworth name is still around, but not the stores. And I believe those Woolworth uh, storefronts or the lunch counters where the civil rights movement uh, stuff took practice, the whites only lunch counters. I believe that those are restored and still, um, visible in whatever the building that has taken over the Woolworths location has. So they kept those as like a historical thing. Uh, but the actual Woolworths name is gone. 1997 out of here. Excelsior motor manufacturing and supply company, 1907 to 1931. The motor company was purchased by Ignaz Schwinn, and Excelsior, who you may know from motorcycle or uh, bicycle fame, bicycles and motorcycles, huge crossover. So when Schwinn bought Excelsior, uh, it was obviously because he saw an opportunity in a part of the industry where he had some expertise. So Excelsior was the very first motorcycle brand to be clocked at 100 miles an hour in like timing, uh, actual timing. Excelsior beat many other makes in racing in the early part of the uh, 20th century, including Pikes Peak, which I believe we talked about when we were talking about Pikes Peak a few months ago. Uh, One of the first, I think it was the first bike to win on Pikes Peak, even against factory Excelsiors, Indians, and Harley Davidsons that were racing. The privateer took his uh, big old uh, Excelsior up there and won. Uh, Excelsior, many, many, many models. I believe they made models for the First World War. Of course, they were gone by the Second World War because in 1928, uh, or 29, rather, the Great Depression uh, convinced Schwinn to close Excelsior. Uh, In 1928, they were the third largest manufacturer behind Indian, then Harley-Davidson, then Excelsior. And, of course, the Great Depression came along. Schwinn had no idea how long it would last, and motorcycle sales had plummeted, and he saw no reason to keep it open. So he shuttered the factory in 1928 suddenly without letting anybody know, and that was it. Done. Uh, Giacomo Agostini. These are all titans, by the way. These are titans. Titans of the industry. Titans whose names will go on in legend have appeared in many films, many documentaries, 
uh, pop culture, Sears and Robux and Woolworth, both in uh, pop culture, uh, you know, famously more Woolworths more in like the uh, earlier part of the uh, 20th century. But Sears still, you know, I'm sure they the craftsman tools have popped up in certain things. Excelsior is one of these things. They were a titan. They were the third largest company. And, and, and before the Great Depression, there were a lot of motorcycle companies. I can guarantee there was Mitchell, Flying Merkel, um, Tor. Uh, there was a couple other ones that had weird little names that I owed, oh, like Douglas, I believe, and Henderson, and uh, Flying Merkel, stuff like that. I believe all those are American uh, companies and Crocker and, you know, all, all these. And after, you know, the, the great depression wiped everybody out. Right. So Excelsior third largest, imagine if like, you know, Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Yamaha, blah, 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 blah. You know, a bunch of other Japanese makes manufacturers that you haven't even heard of, but imagine that the big four are, uh, competing with a lot of other people from Asia and a huge, uh, financial crisis happens. And all of a sudden, you know, you got Honda and you got Yamaha. And that's it. Kawi, you know, is gone. Actually, I think Kawasaki sells more than Yamaha. So you got Honda and Kawi. Yamaha's gone. Suzuki barely sells any, so they're gone. You know what I mean? Like, imagine that. No Yamaha, no Rossi, none of that stuff. Um, speaking of Rossi, the next Titan on our list that people have looked up to and have slowly faded away, <coughs> Yakumo Agostini. Sorry, <coughs> I'm going to die here. He raced, I believe... I believe 17 years, so almost not not quite two decades, a, dec- a little over a decade and a half. He raced, but 13 years in Grand Prix, racing the Grands Prix, as I'm going to say. <clears throat> After he retired from motorcycles, he raced a couple more years in Formula uh, 750, which was still motorcycles, but then went on for two years in Formula One, which is race cars. He racked up 10 TT wins at the Isle of the Man. The Isle of the Man. Uh, he holds the highest number of GP championships at eight, I believe. Um, he won the 350 and 500 GPs seven times in a row. Uh, different years, he won the GP, uh, the 350 GPs. Uh, I think he started winning those a little bit earlier than the 500s, but they were staggered. They were overlapping for like six or five or six of the seven years in a row, but he won seven years in a row in 350 and seven years in a row in 500. And the way they're staggered, I think he won about eight or nine years um, total overall, like in a row. He was a superstar of the 60s and 70s. Uh, he, he may be part of the reason that the Isle of Man was dropped from the MotoGP schedule, actually, in 1977, and GP racing, actually, uh, because his friend got killed in 72, and he raced there a few times, and then in 70, and said, hey, after 72, I'm going to quit. Five years later, they they said, yeah, you know, a lot of people are saying this. He started the movement, and by 77, it was off the schedule and became its own um, road race. So in uh, 75, he took his last GP title and the first GP championship for a two-stroke. So he won the very first uh, GP on a, uh, that a two-stroke ever won. I believe it was an, on, it was on an MV. Um, the next year, even though he didn't win the championship, he still got the last win in 76 for a 500 GP bike four-stroke. So he won the very first two-stroke uh, uh, championship on, a, on the very first two-stroke and gave two-strokes the beginning of their rise to uh, you know greatness. And then the very next year won the last... 
uh, race. I forget which race it was, but um, he won. He won only uh, one race on the four-stroke uh, 500 MV Augusta, and that was the last time that a four-stroke would win uh, GP uh, th- all throughout the two-stroke era of GP racing. Um, and so, yeah, he is actually still alive, by the way, too. He's in his 70s, so he's just a couple years older than Valentino Rossi, but definitely a titan. Now we come to Valentino Rossi. He is second to Ago in GP championships, despite almost double the career length. Um, he's won five GPs in a row. He is the only racer to compete on 500, 800, and 1,000 two- and four-stroke machines, basically uh, because of all the uh, variations right when he first started. He got lucky that he was one of the last years of the uh, 500 two-strokes. He's raced for Honda, Yamaha, and Ducati. He's seen most of his main rivals like Max Biaggi and uh, Loris Caparossi retire from GP racing. He started a riding academy. He hosts supermoto races at his world-famous ranch. And even though he hasn't won a MotoGP championship uh, since 2009, he's still beloved by millions. He hasn't won an actual race since 2017, although he has podiumed several times, including this year uh, in this very unpredictable season. I think he just uh, podiumed third today. So another titan of the sport, still alive, by the way, and fading. And the, th- the final titan in today's lineup is Harley-Davidson. It's an American Titan or giant, you know, it's, it's a Titan of the industry and it's appearing in all sorts of publications uh, or it has appeared actually in all sorts of publications, not only history books and, and, uh, the, the uh, history of American motorcycling and industrial revolution in general, but also it's appeared in several stock and market watchdog publications, tech companies are publishing things about it because they were excited about where the bar and shield was going to take their foray into electric motorcycles and technology. But after nearly a dec- decade of slide- sliding sales, this COVID-19 situation has done nothing but hurt the Milwaukee-based Motorco. And although anecdotally, a bunch of my friends from the service department at a uh, local SoCal dealership that shall remain unnamed, they've been slammed with work orders and been selling stuff left and right. The company as a whole has lost billions of dollars. Um, and millions on their spreadsheets. Um, so earlier this year, CEO Matt Levitich was ousted by the current throne sitter Jochen Zeitz like a titan being ousted by an Olympian in our in our original, uh, if you were listening to the beginning of the show, the Titans uh, being the original cosmic gods, the Olympians ca- coming in later, uh, battling from two mythical mountains. And the Titans themselves, I, I doubt you know their names if I were to rattle them off. Um, but you've heard of Mount Olympus, you've heard of the Olympics, you probably have heard of most of the modern Olympians, if I were to name their names, just because of their proliferation through history and mythology and uh, all that type of stuff. So the battle for Mount Harley perhaps began years ago when the Bar and Shield stocks began their climb from just $8 in March of 2009, right after the global financial crisis happened then because of the housing market, to just under $73 in May of 2014. So ever since then, then they've been on a downhill slide. And since 2015, when this show started, Creative Writing has been reporting 
on one Harley debacle after another just because they pop up in the news. They are the king of the hill, and so they're the ones that everyone shines the spotlight on when something happens. And like the Titanomachy, which lasted 10 years and ousted the Titans from the throne, go look that up. Uh, it's the uh, what they call the Battle of the Titans versus the Olympians. Um, and it's what got the Titans kicked out. Uh, so have circumstances and aloof business decisions done the same to Harley Davidson. So the brave new business directions and too late investment in the new lineup uh, dried up the coffers of the company and left the new executive team to scramble back to what they know and to what, as another marquee... Uh, just make them one of these other ones that are resigned to the history books, like Excelsior, Flying Merkel, Crocker. I mean, they're going to be there longer, but hopefully motorcycling continues for a couple hundred more years. I mean, it, it took a while to eradicate the horse and wagon, and uh, they're still around to some degree, so hopefully motorcycles does the same. Hopefully, you know, Harley, whether they die now or, I mean, they've almost died a few times, um, hopefully they remain in the history books. But they are, are eventually, no doubt about it, going to be resigned to legend and eventually myth. Well, there's already a bunch of myths about it right now, but they're going to be part of the uh, motorcycling myth and legend, the uh, lexography of all that. So what this titan of the motorcycle industry is doing now that can't really save their company in the long term, this history that we are being seen written right in front of us right now will make an amazing and tragic story in a few decades. And the MotoCo was struggling in the 1980s when the company was bought by a board of directors bought from this uh, holding company or the uh, parent company AMF that's when Harley like ceased to be Harley in my mind they did the same thing that Indian did they I mean the company hadn't quit and come back so technically it's not the exact same thing Indian did but when Harley quit being Harley is when AMF bought them they were plagued with uh all sorts of problems. Superior Japanese machines coming in. They were stifled by tariffs. Harley asked the president to enact some tariffs and claimed uh, market saturation and mark and dumping and stuff like that. So tariffs saved them then in the 80s. Racing rules got adjusted to favor the American icon. But the biggest enemy would come from within. So there's a false sense of security. Um, and uh, within any company, I can tell you there's always a desire to acquire the throne from the current holder. I mean, everybody's a team and everybody's working, but when you when you see that the king is about to, to give up, die, or retire, or whatever, go live off in a farm somewhere, guaranteed. That's what, uh, you know, watch any show about it. It's, it's amazing what's happened throughout history uh, when people see a struggle. And it might not be, you, know, you might know that there's a successor, but underneath them there's a struggle. So although the internal business workings are kind of kept pretty private, there's no doubt that a desire to reign over the Harley David empire, and I'm sure internal aggravation at all levels, just like every company has, no matter what size, uh, has led to some of their demise. Now, they've tried to shun regulations. They've been fraught with reliability and recall issues, strikes, and even had racing rules rewritten again when Indian came in uh, with no change in results. Actually, I think they've got worse uh, since... Um, switching platforms but all that has happened since my sh since this show started in 2015 and that's only you know five years of, of of seeing them sliding and the stocks have been going down since then you can look up on um any any stock uh thing that uh, will let you look back to when they started tracking harleys in the 90s i think it was 1990 or late 80s i guess 86 
they slowly ramped up, which is what you should do. You should slowly ramp and keep going up like one of Evil Knievel's jumps. You shouldn't go and then spike and then drop and then spike and drop and spike and drop, uh, which is what Harley's doing. They're very volatile. And uh, so they de- it depends on a lot of what's happening. If you listen to the Cleveland Moto, they will tell you uh, they do a good job of explaining that they – bought back a bunch of their shares so that there wasn't so many out there, which makes them more valuable because now there's not as many to buy. And that's one way to do it. How many times can you do that before you own all your shares, nobody owns them, and you still aren't making any money because nobody's investing at that point? So uh, I am right now have seen Harley-Davidson come back from the brink so many times that uh, right now what I see them doing is is failing, which sucks because I I know a lot of people that – uh, work at Harley dealerships. We know some people that work at Harley and a lot of people love Harley and there's a lot, there's, it's so much legacy in the motorcycle community, right? So it's like I'm saying, it's going to be one of those brands that p- perhaps goes away, gets rebought like Indian does. Would you still like Harley if they got rebought like Indian? Uh, like if somebody else bought them like Can-Am or somebody like that and uh, re- re-brought up Harley-Davidson, kind of like Harley-Davidson did to Buell or like other people have tried to do to Buell. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'd have much more success with the name like Harley-Davidson than you would with Buell because he was relatively short-lived compared to Harley. But uh, same thing. Would you would you buy a Harley? Would you claim legacy fraud like people are doing with Indian? So anyway, they've tried to shun regulations. They've had all these reli- reliability recalls all the federal things for selling uh, EPA-violating devices, trying to have the rules rewritten. Um, And now, instead of establishing – they've done all that stuff. And instead of establishing a new network outroad from the soon-to-burn kingdom, they are withdrawing and closing the only escape routes that would have let them avoid internal – and external destruction. So it's kind of like building a town, and instead of building this little web of roads to get out in case of an emergency, you, you're you retreating, and you're like, we got one road in, one road out, and we're pulling up the draw, drawbridge. So right now, they're supposedly killing most of the uh, all roads lead to Harley efforts. We'll see if the Pan American and the Bronx and all that stuff gets uh, thrown away. The live wire is out and is for sale, so we'll see if that... Uh, remains, or we'll see if they even can that. But what's killing Harley-Davidson, in my, again, my opinion only, is the lack of diverse models. So to hear that they're pulling up stakes and retreating inwards uh, and making more of what the boomers are, are riding and what Gen X is riding and what the aging millennials um, are riding, they're not riding that. I mean, the, the further you go down that list, the less people are riding traditional Harley-Davidson's, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so that's killing them, having a lack of diverse models, because that each each age range that you go down right there saw better, especially even, even boomers saw some good Hondas and stuff. Gen X, boom. That was like uh, when all the good stuff hit the market from everywhere, and now millennials, like there's so much stuff on the market, you're in, you have too much choice and not enough money. So the price of existing models is another thing that I think is killing Harley Davidson and Ducati. So the and the reluctance to let go of legacy. So exactly what I'm saying about them retreating into what they know rather than expanding outward and trying to see if something. It's almost like trying to protect your planet that you keep polluting instead of trying to move to, uh, you know, figure out a way to quit polluting or move to a new planet. You got to do something. This, you know, it all, all uh, kind of can be summed up 
like that. You need to have an outroad. So the reluctance to let go of legacy and start a new chapter, the constant and consistent job cuts and constant and consistent being two different things. Constant meaning it's always happening. It always keeps happening. And consistent means that not only are the job cuts keep happening every few years, but it's consistently jobs that are cut and it's consistently cuts, not like reassignments. So it's constant and consistent. And I see a loss of talent happening at Harley that should not be happening. And I understand that there's nothing you can do about it. Um, given the fact that you have this type of vehicle and that's what you're doing. So even Ducati is experiencing the same percentage of market downturn right now, yet the majority of their bikes are scramblers, not Diavel, Superleggeras, and V4 Street Fighters. And there's about 95,000 different types of scramblers. If Harley maybe pulled back on the baggers and quit having like Road Glide Special, Road Glide Ultra, Road Glide Custom, Road Glide Standard, and maybe made like Sportsters, and maybe some soft tails that made the Dyna Bros come back, and a lot of people love soft tails. Focus on like one or two good baggers. Make the rest cheap, affordable stuff that's not twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand bucks. You know, so that's one thing that Ducati is doing well. They found Scrambler. They found hipsters. Hipsters love Scramblers. Why doesn't? Where's Harley's Sportster Scrambler at? It's been missing for the last like seven years, and now that trend is kind of going away and and uh so they're they've missed the boat already so just like titans in decline racers marks like harley davidson legendary events and even mythical podcasts and personalities who once were held in high esteem and honor might find themselves on the brink of decline especially in this time right now i know we've seen a couple of our podcast friends go away in the past few years and it's sort of the same thing if you were already on the brink you know you may be out. So unlike Joey Dunlop or Marco Simoncelli, whose end came suddenly and in a, in a flash, right, when they were, you know, even Joey Dunlop, even though he's a little older, was still winning races a lot. And um, Marco Simoncelli was up and coming. And so there's a lot of these stories that happen. Same with Kirk Caselli. Any, you know, anybody you want to mention that's not, you know, hasn't passed on. Like if John McGinnis right now were to pass away at the Isle of Man, I would say, he died doing what he loved, but he hasn't won there in a little bit, even though he's got a huge number. He's not very far away from Joey Dunlop right now. So he's he's a legend. He's a myth for sure. But um, he like like Rossi was, you know, and like I said, Rossi hasn't won since 2017. So these titans, just like the mythical titans and Olympians uh, of Greek mythology, um, and if you want to go read Hesiod's... Um, Theogogy or something like that. I, for, I, for, I forget what the uh, the his, the piece of writing is called. But um, yeah, it took ten years for the Titans to be overthrown, and uh, that's I kind of how I feel about what's happening right now in the motorcycle industry. Is ten years? These things didn't happen suddenly. Just like Sears and Robux didn't happen suddenly. It happened because new people came in, uh, old people refused to change and or dynasties legacies whatever you want to call them and the world changes around you and when you don't change you fade into oblivion eventually becoming myth i mean there's probably tons of stories about excelsiors crockers vincent black shadows nortons before they got rebranded and then have fallen away again even buells but they're gone now and people are kind of forgetting oh vincent isn't that an old vintage bike because you know you try to tell a young kid about like a NSU or a uh, Air Maki or something, you know, they want a friggin' R1 and a CBR. So 
these these brands, they're Harley Davidson, Rossi, all these guys are they're fading off into oblivion, just like the Titans, and it's taken ten years. Rossi is literally eleven years now since he's won a championship, and he's retiring at the end of this year from factory team, going on to do his own thing. So I don't see him coming back anytime soon. But anyway, uh, so just just like these modern Titans, they're slowly going to fade after decades of fighting and struggling to remain illuminated in the cosmos. And some of them have already started, a.k.a. Augustini. Do you even know who that is? Let's take a quick break and let's come back and wrap up the show with creative writing and your favorite host, Tobor. Zappers, Zappers. we got them. Whappers. Whappers, we got them. We got everything you off-road adventure this summer at Nathan's Power Sports Village in Durston. Brakes? Brakes. We got those. Tires? We got those. Seatbelts for your motorcycle? We got those. Visit us down at Nathan's Power Sports Village, just east of Durston. Durston. Hey there, listeners. This is Patreon subscriber Narissa coming to you from inside my helmet in the land of beer and cheese, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You're listening to the Creative Writing Podcast because you're obviously ridiculously good looking. All right, that was Patreon Narissa. There we go, Tobor. I heard that loud and clear. That was not her Harley Davidson boy. Blowing up, by the way. That was Tobor on the boards, making some sweet, sweet sounds. Do it, do it again. Yeah, I don't even know. Jeez Louise, quit it before people hang up on us. Uh, so, everybody, listen, we're wrapping up here, Creative Writing, episode 229. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Uh, segment, uh, off-track segment, which is one of our new segments that we're doing right now, uh, we're going to wrap up before this thing dies here too. Uh, I just want to tell you really quick, what time, how, what time are we at Tobor? Hold up a finger. Not that finger. Hold up a minute. Okay. Hour and 20. Okay. We can wrap this up soon. Uh, so yeah, listen, this, uh, new segment called off track. This is where we talk about anything but motorcycle related stuff. This is where you get to know us and see how much we know. What if, what if junkie did a show? That was just him not talking about himself. How long would it be? Five seconds? Yeah, Tobor's, Tobor's holding up that same one finger. So anyway, this is the uh, off-track, and I wanted to bring up this week's uh, off-track conservation. What do you know about conservation? Well, there's a whole bunch of conservation that I'm not going to go into, partially for time, partially for battery reasons. But uh, I did want to say that uh, what's with all these trees in the USA? Now you should have like a cool stinger there, Tobor. Tobor, you're the awful list. Stop it. All right, Tobor is officially fired. If you are a producer and you would like to uh, join our team, please let me know. You can replace Tobor very easily, I might add. He does come up with some one-liners once in a while, but uh, nothing good lately. Anyway, the truth about all the trees in the USA. Now, I don't know what is going on in your particular part of the USA or the country that you're in that you're listening to us from. Um, And... The thing here is that we all value trees. We're all green. Let's be green. Let's make electric vehicles. Let's like recycle, blah, 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 all this great stuff, right? Let's grow some trees, plant a tree, Arbor Day for Pete's sake. Uh, And conservation started way back in the day. Uh, Like I said, one of the um, 
presidents who it's coming out now that well it was always always known that he was kind of a sort of a dirtbag as a president um, was totally in the conversation conver- conversation conservation and yeah, a conversation about conservation uh, and that was Teddy Roosevelt uh, John Muir also is another one of those guys that uh, was when and helped establish the park system and all this and that. Um, and conservation areas and thought national forests were great. Now, when you think of a forest, I don't know if you think of a jungle-type forest. Do you think of trees when you say forest? Because there's going to be types of forests that aren't necessarily trees. Now, forestation, what that means, like leafy sort of growths, right? So I guess you could have a shrub forest if you're that type of person. But um, anyway, the truth about all the trees in the USA. Now, when I was looking into some land and whenever I go back to, uh, back east or through like the, uh, the wet belt, as I'll call it, um, when you're in the eastern United States, uh, there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of moisture. And that's why even up north where our good friends live uh, up you know, if you're in San Francisco or just south of there, Santa Cruz, even, uh, let me think, like Big Sur, all that stuff on the California coast where there's redwoods, there are dense forests, and it's because the coastal fog brings a lot of moisture. But if you go to Yellowstone, not Yellowstone, god dang it, Yosemite, uh, I believe the Awani people are the ones that lived in Yosemite. And if you look even in Arkansas and places that were forests that are super forested now, probably Virginia, places like that, Lots of forest, and all of a sudden, poop, you'll pop into a town, and then you'll go back into the forest, and you'll pop into a town. It's beautiful. It's green. But what does it really mean? Now, out here in California, there's one thing uh, that we struggle with every year as motorcyclists um, and citizens and, uh, you know, residents is wildfires. Um, and all we heard about, uh, especially a couple years ago when the president brought up wildfires and withholding uh government funds until we do something about it, um, is that, hey, why are there so many wildfires? You guys do a poor job of management, yada, yada, yada. Well, here's the deal. That is true. When the natives lived here, especially the Iwanis in Yosemite Valley, you go to Yosemite Valley now, uh, it is vastly different than it used to be uh, back in the day. Now, the LA natives were a little bit different, and I'm not 100% sure how they um, dealt with this stuff. Cause I know they had more of like set up civilization. Um, like they actually had like little towns and villages. And so I'm sure they didn't do this to the same extent, but the Iwani, uh, people in Yosemite Valley would torch the Valley and let it burn. And then torch the other end, I think when they were returning back. So they had fallen winter camps that they would go to. And, uh, I'm sorry, winter and, uh, summer camps that they would go to. And when they were heading to, toward the winter camp, they would torch the summer camp and vice versa. I think when they were heading out of, out of the winter camp, they would torch it on their way back to the uh, summer camp. And what it would do, it would clear the deadfalls. It would clear the uh, some of the smaller trees, some of the older trees. And when I was back in Arkansas, our family's land is covered in timber, so thick you can barely see through parts of it. And then you go and you see it clear cut. And I would always think, oh, man, like that would have been a beautiful forest, you know, right there. But it's all forest, right? And the thing is, is what I learned at the uh, – I, I didn't really ever think of it like this. But cons- conservation and conserving things sometimes – and you ask any uh, big game hunter this that hunts like um, overpopulated yet endangered animals on preserves and stuff – 
you have to call the herd sometimes, right? And everyone gets mad because hey, they shot a lion or they shot one of the last rhinos or something like that. But a lot of times these are sick and they can pass sickness on to the other ones and therefore you're endangering the population by not uh, – by not hunting them, right? Or they're aggressive and you're endangering the rest of the population by not taking out the aggressive ones so everybody else can live in harmony, right? And and produce and make more. You're actually doing it harm by not taking out some of the bad bad ones or some of the bad genes that are going to mix in there uh, with the rest of them uh, inbreeding and all that great jazz. So sometimes you do have to call the herd. Same with trees. And I'm bringing this up because it's the time of the year where California is catching on fire. It's pretty hot today. Uh, we're, we are in a little bit of a heat wave right now and our good friend Brady Walker up at the Homestead Ranch had a fire go really close to their, uh, their property up there and, uh, needed to be ready to evacuate and luckily didn't have to, but the fires, this is something that we are permanent residents now that the, um, indigenous people of this country. And like I said, I don't know. I don't know about all countries, but this country in particular used to take care of by burning stuff every every year. Excuse me. Got a pube stuck in my throat. <laughs> That's a lie. Anyway, um, yeah, so we I had a really good discussion with some people and even when I was in Yosemite, the the uh, we went on a little tour and they talked about this pines being a beautiful beautiful uh, tree and making the scenery just beautiful for pictures, for riding your motorcycle through, for visiting a park. There's so much awesome stuff to look at, but pines are super invasive. And whenever there's water, they will move down and start growing in it. And they said, when there's been good years of rain, the pines have grown down. But now you have, she said, it doesn't look like it, but we are still in a drought. And California was in a terrible drought a few years ago. You know, we we're talking about, are we going to have to start rationing water like they did in South Africa, where like eventually the town knows that they're going to run out of water and then they eventually do? Like, what the hell do you do when it's a, you have a modern public society uh, that runs out of water? You know, that's one of one of your necessities and you have to ship it in from somewhere else. So we're in a huge water crisis. Well, part of the problem is that we're restoring things to um, the way we think they should be. And it's not necessarily the way the uh, our ancestors or people that lived here before us, custodians of the land that we have since run off, uh, operated. And the thing is, is that the, like I'm saying with the Yosemite Valley, the natives would burn it all the time, thus getting rid of all these trees that have now grown in. And the Yosemite Valley is very green. And the uh, ranger pointed out to us that yes, now they're in a drought and it doesn't look like it. There's a drought because there's all these trees. Well, how can trees grow in a drought? Well, the tree, there would be a lake there if there wasn't all these trees, the trees are actually sucking up lots of water and the natural wetlands that were there are now dry because the trees are taking up that resource. So it doesn't look like a drought, but it is. Um, and so they are going through and cutting down trees. And I just wanted to say that although you may value the beauty of a forest and, and, and yes, trees are awesome, but uh, did you know that old trees, uh, and if you have timber land and you can cut some of the timber and make money for it, this is a good, uh, a good reason for you to take, take advantage of that resource, get some money, especially in these times. Uh, if you can, old trees do not, uh, make as much oxygen as new trees. If you think of a kid and a kid, if, if food is, is oxygen, kids are just running around gobbling food. Like the t teenager with the hollow leg you've heard, or like you eat more than 
you know, I do five times over every day, you know, growing teenagers constantly just eating and sleeping. Well, imagine oxygen is food and sleep. They're processing that way more than the older ones. So if you're an older adult and you're, you can survive on two hours of sleep or three hours of sleep and 1200 calories a day, that's all you're doing. But kids and growing young adults need all that. So that's kind of like a tree in oxygen. The older ones, they don't, we, we think of trees as, yeah, they give us oxygen, but not the older ones. The younger ones that are going through all these processes and sucking in carbon dioxide to do photosynthesis, they're the ones putting out uh, carbon or uh, oxygen. The older ones are already established. They don't need to do that as much. So even cutting down old, old, for, uh, old trees, you know, you might keep one that's three or 400 years old, sure, as like sort of same thing as like Stonehenge in England. You're not going to go build an apartment complex around that, are you? No, but at the same time, like everywhere else you have, you know, there's a, you're b- basically building uh, a country on established ancient lands, and, and it hasn't done you, you know, London doesn't look the same as it did back when it was a hovel with a goat, you know, 5,000 years ago or whatever. So there are ways to... Uh, m- keep this stuff beautiful, make the uh, environment more beautiful. Maybe it would kill some of the smog problems we're having too if we got some rid of some of this old growth uh, forest and let limited, I mean, you still don't want to kill everything, but you know, let limited uh, trained logging come in and cut down some of these old trees and plant new trees where you're cutting the old ones down. That's the great thing about wood. It's a renewable resource, right? And it doesn't take very long for trees to grow and proof of that is that last time I was at my dad's house, half the trees that are on his property weren't there. And now, I've, it's only been five years since I've been back, and I go back, and some of these trees are huge, and they're like, hey, that wasn't there. I could see your, you know, whatever your uh, back pasture was. Now I can't. There's like a row of trees there, and they weren't there last time I was here five years ago. So they they grow pretty quickly, uh, and you can get keep cutting down some of the older ones and replant new ones. It's great. And they re- they cycle, and it's part of uh, conservation. Sometimes being destroying things that you think are valuable, but they're not valuable, and that's <laughs> kind of ties into the Titan. Uh, you know, if we always had the same racers, we'd still have you know Jim Redman and and uh, what's his face's. Uh, Gosh dang, I can't even think of Jeff Duke's skeletons riding around GP bikes, right? No, the new blood has to come in. New companies have to come in. New directions have to be taken. So think about conservation. When you, when I think about trees, the, the reason that got me thinking about it was cause fire season's here. And I thought about how fun it is to go riding out in amongst the trees. And I started thinking about pine trees. Got me on this whole conservation thing. And then I was like, ah, it kind of ties in with like California in general. And then... Also, I didn't realize how it, well it tied into the uh, the old uh, what's it called <laughs> the Titan discussion we were having earlier. So yes, that's it. And now, uh, junkies tips. We're moving on from our off track conversation. That's it. Do a little stinger, Tobor. That wasn't Tobor. That was me. Tobor is dead, I think. So anyway, uh, his battery died and the computer's dying. So I need to uh, get this out to you asap. So junkies tips for this week. Go go plant a tree. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I have a health tip this week, actually. I've been trying to get a little bit healthier uh, as I'm going to be 100 and I think 57 this year, or 192. I forget how old I'm going to be, but I know it's well over the hundreds. And um, get a health tracker. I got this watch called the Forerunner, the Foreskin, the Forerunner. It's by Garmin. 
of all things. So I know it's got probably got a GPS built into it. But, dude, it tracks your heart rate. It tracks your sleep. It does all sorts of funky, cool stuff. Um, and you can program all sorts of great stuff into it. And I got it remanded on Amazon for 35 bucks. They're normally like 100 bucks or something like that or 80 bucks. I got it for like 35 bucks because I got a, a refurbished one that somebody bought, didn't like the, hand, the uh, band on it, and sent it back. So I was like, well, I like that band better than the black one. So now it's mine. And I got to say, it tracks if you hook up the app and then hook up like a uh, another fo- another compatible app like a track your calories you would be surprised at how much or how little you're eating and uh, one of my other tips is to get a tracker because if you are skinny fat which means if you're skinny but you're not very muscular you're mostly fat you could probably use to eat more food and then there's no way to know if you're eating more of the right foods without tracking it. So tracking it on paper is one way to do it. Tracking it with an app is another. But tracking it with one of these goddamn watches is pretty sweet. Uh, And it lets you just push a button and see. It's like the future. It's like the future. It's like not 1980 anymore. Uh, You don't have to write it down on your calendar. All you got to do is push a button on your watch. So track your calories. um, Get stronger so that you can whip some butt on your motorbike and get out there and enjoy these pine trees and all the other trees that you're going to be riding through because we're going to be conserving more. And uh, so there's there's conservation and junkies tip segments in one healthy wrap-up. Yeah. All right. Uh, current events, and let's get the F out of here. All right. Current events. If you got them, smoke them. That's literally what it says there on my stupid thing. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, okay, so listen. Uh, one thing I want you to do is go to, you heard me talk about it before, IMS Rides. Uh, if you go to Continue the Ride uh, on IMS, uh, the IMS Rides basically is a video that the uh, the motorcycle shows are putting out. So they're not just motorcycle shows, they're trying to get involved with the community. And the Continue the Ride or is uh, the website features all these cool things like little blog posts. You've heard me talk about it before. Why am I re, uh, restating it right now? Anyway... The IMS Rides videos has some pretty cool links of like the one that they've, uh, I'm looking at right now is the Canyons of Malibu. So go out there and check that out and they will have new little posts of things that you can go do, people that you can go see and all that great jazz right there on the IMS website. Um, another th- another great thing I was uh, seeing, not this one, Harley letting go of 700 jobs. We don't want to read that. That's very sad. Um, this weekend... What already had happened is out at, out at Glen Helen there was a race, so that's a problem. Moto One guys, I'm telling you, maybe we needed to do a midweek show. Uh, but yeah, go out. There's some cool rides. If you go to timeout.com and look up the best scenic drives in L.A., uh, there's a couple of those that you can go to, and I think it's fantabulous what they have listed there. Um, I think that those some of those would be fun to go do like a fun group ride. Oh yes, we are. Yes, I gotta go, you guys. This this has got to be the end of the show right now. Uh, so anyway, hopefully you have fun at Sturgis. Yeah, every battery's dying. What's going on? Something's zapping the uh, something is zapping the energy from this this room right here. So I better go before it zaps my energy. Uh, so my weekly challenge is to count your calories for a few days. Um, a few weeks ago, I asked on Instagram what advice you would give to a new rider. I'm going to give you the answers that people gave to me, but that's going to be my other call to action this week is to get out there, go for a ride (laughs) and count your calories, but, uh, get out there, go for a ride and, um, take a new rider with you if you can. So, uh, the two people that messaged back on Instagram, 
the question was, when, when do you think it's appropriate for a new rider to start riding canyons alone or in a group? And what should they expect if they do go for some canyon riding? Um, uh, Noble Moto, who actually, uh, they just did a really good group ride from what I've heard uh, a couple weeks ago says that they tell everybody to ride their own ride because everyone will wait at the next inter- intersection. And I've given many pre-ride lectures that involved I would rather rate, wait for you than wait for an ambulance. So please ride your own ride. And I really like that one. Um, some of the other comments. Come on. Here we go. All right. Uh, this one comes from somebody who is a... Uh, was a uh, SoCal native. I think we're living in Oregon now. Uh, I think when riding canyons, the best for me was having a skilled yet patient friend to follow at first. Be honest about your skills and fear levels. And if you don't feel like your friend is ready to be supportive, don't worry, find a different friend. I've helped a lot of people gain confidence by being a slow lead and gradually assessing their progress to help them uh, just be confident Going with going faster. Do not jump on a group ride or try to follow strangers or your riding buddies who aren't sympathetic to your newness. And that was Jesse Gentry. She, um, I think, used to live up in the canyons, so I'm sure that she has taken a lot of people out in the canyons. Uh, the Mouse in the Moto, who I know is a rider coach, says, when you're comfortable keeping a decent enough speed, if you're going too slow, it's dangerous because other drivers don't care if you're nervous or what. I still take new friends out and lead them through so they can watch my actions. Do always tell anyone you ride with your skill level and the speeds you feel safe at. I have no issue going with slower riders, but they got to be up front or I won't realize it. And then suddenly they're not behind me, which, yes, you don't want to look in the rearview mirror and be like, oh, my God, do I need to turn around? Are they a few seconds behind me or are they down the cliff behind me? So that uh, similar yet uh, different approach. And and uh, thank you also for uh, the mouse and the moto. And then ramming speed racing says fuck noobs. And I agree with that one the most. All right, everybody. That has been this week's show. Uh, give us a call. Please leave us a rating or review wherever you find us. We're available on SoundCloud, Stitcher. I think Google Play is going away. So we're not, you know, Google changes stuff all the time. So I don't think we'll be available on Google anymore. But again, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, TuneIn, Podbean, Podtrack, Podflab, uh, Flabby Babs. If you hear us being played over an AM radio uh, down in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, please let us know what station we're on. Um, but also, yeah, give us a give us a call. Uh, you can leave us a message at 740-563-2858. That's the Creative Writing Hotline. You can contact the show at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can always hit us up on Facebook uh, at facebook.com forward slash creative writing podcast or Instagram, Instagram.com forward sliding forward sliding uh, I meant forward slash creative writing podcast. You can even check us out on Twitter with the the old uh, everybody else that's on Twitter at uh, creative underscore writer and yep check out our blog creative-writing.com and that's this week's show we'll talk to you fools later get out there ride have a good one don't be a titan don't fade away in 10 years keep it up you stay golden pony boy